Hi, everybody. My name is Pat Hogarty, and welcome back to California Real Estate Principles, Real Estate 300. This happens to be show number 22. So as I usually say, we're moving along pretty well. I did some count today, and I think when I calculated it out, this will have, we'll have a total of, I believe, 32 shows. So after this, we'll have 10 more to go, and we'll be done. So uh, that's pretty great. Uh, what we're going to be talking about today is real estate appraisal. Uh, as I've mentioned before in many other classes, when we talk about real estate appraisal, we're just sort of touching on the topics of real estate appraisal. This is a subject area just like real estate finance would be or economics in which they have you know, multiple courses. In the case of real estate appraisal, there are, in, like at our college, there's a basic class and then there's an advanced class. And uh, Consequently, the basic is usually where you're talking about dealing with houses and small income properties, more advanced, you're applying more advanced topical areas, more uh, looking at buildings, more from the fact of trying to actually construct them and figure out what it would cost to replace them, and doing things such as using the income approach and ca capitalization to try to figure out you know, what the property is worth, not concerned what somebody may have paid for it in the past or what it would cost to construct, but what, you know, what kind of income can I derive from it. So anyway, appraisal is a very, you know, fairly sophisticated, complicated topic, but it's one of those things that you need to know about if you're going to be in the real estate business, mainly because of the fact that um, I cannot think of pretty much any transaction at all, especially if you're talking about financing or refinancing in which the lender is not, is not is going to lend you money without having an appraisal. So primarily, if you want to look at it, uh, who drives uh, the requirement for a lot of appraisals is, is, in reality, people that lend money or banks. So anyway, we're going to be talking about appraisal. And uh, what I want to do is what's important is that we sort of ground ourselves in the beginning and talk about what is the appraiser really trying to get accomplished. And then the process that they're going to go through in putting together an appraisal in other words, defining a problem, looking at a process, a process being something that they can always follow time after time. And then we'll talk about things that affect the value of property. A lot of things that some of you may have thought about, in some cases some of you may not have thought about. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. So again, I want to start out by going to uh, my old favorite document camera over here and just talking about... Uh, you know, a definition of appraisal and a little bit about, you know, what that really means. So as we talk about here, I'm going to read this because I think this is very, very important. It says, what is an appraisal? Uh, an appraisal is an opinion as to the monetary value of a particular property at a given date. Now, what's really important about that is to keep in mind that an appraiser can go out today and appraise a piece of property and render a, an opinion to its value. And that's only good for that particular time that they've done that. Uh, for example, it's not uncommon that with the economy the way it is now that an appraiser may have gone out last year, appraised a home, had all the backup data that was necessary to justify their opinion, said the value of that property is $300,000, written a report out, given it to the client, they lent some money on it. And this year, you take the same appraiser, go back out, out and look at it, look at this existing sales and what's happening in the, in the market and find out the property is actually less worth less than it was last year. Why? Because of some other factor. In our case, it happens to be rising interest rates. Okay, so very, very important that we understand it's time-sensitive information. 
going on from there, it says one of the most important factors you uh, for you to consider in deciding whether to sell or buy a home or a particular piece of real estate is its selling price. Very, very important. You know, what are you willing to buy? What are you willing to sell sell it for? Each parcel of land and buildings on it is unique. Believe it or not, every single solitary piece of property is unique. There is something unique about it. It has some additional feature or, or it doesn't have that feature or it, it's larger or smaller or it has a better lot or a better view. There's something that affects the value of the property. No two are, uh, are exactly alike, no, so that's why prices vary. The market price, selling price, is the total price, including the down payment, and financing that a property actually brought when it was sold, okay? So in other words, the total price includes everything, okay? Uh, market price is what it sold for, whereas market value is what it should have sold for in a competitive market, and we'll talk about that in a minute, okay? What we want to do is look at this definition here, uh, and we want to make sure we keep this in mind. The market value is what the property is actually worth. Okay, The market value is the price that a willing buyer will pay and a willing seller will accept, being both being informed and with the sale, and with the sale property exposed for a reasonable period. The courtroom definition is even more technical, and it goes on. This is the courtroom. It says the highest price estimated in terms of money that a property will bring if exposed for sale in an open market, allowing a reasonable length of time for a buyer who buys with full knowledge of all of its uses to which it could be adapted and for which the property is capable of being used. What do we mean by that? We mean a couple things. We mean when this property is put on the market, number one, the real estate agent that has sold the property has done everything in their power to expose it to the market. So what do I mean by that? I mean that, and, and when you talk to, like we have a gentleman that works with us a lot in our internship class. He's a licensed real estate appraiser. Uh, we've had him uh, come in and speak at our internship class. His name is Jeff Webb. He talks about this. is very, very important, you know, when he's getting ready to do an appraisal. And he looks at what we call comparables, you know, other properties that are sold. He actually calls the real estate agents and to find out some information about the transaction, what happened. But what we're talking about is that that property has been put on the market by a real estate agent, and the agent has done everything they possibly can to market it. And some of the things that are important that you have to keep in mind, in other words, the agent has put it in the multiple listing system. They have had all of their brokers and agents they know in the community that they possibly could get to come through and take a look at the house. In other words, they've exposed it to all of those agents so that those agents hopefully will maybe have a client that's ready, willing, and able to buy. They've put a sign out for side for sale, letting the community know that the house is actually for sale. They have turned around and put ads in the newspaper. They have held an open house. In other words, they have done everything to let everybody know that the property is for sale. Now, the reason why I stress that is because if you have something that is not done and the property has sold, okay, you could be that the reason why you didn't get the higher price was because you didn't do all of the things that were necessary to sell. For example, if the owner turns around, and you see this in some communities where they'll say, you know, I really don't want to let anybody know that the house is for sale. So they'll put a sign up outside. I know some of you may think, I mean, who in the world would do this? 
There are people that will do this. They'll say, I don't want anybody to know that the house is for sale. I'm afraid that they're going to, you know, that 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 happens. They're going to do things and make the agent's job more difficult. For example, they'll say, uh, by the way, please don't show the house during the day. You know, I work night shift. I sleep during the day, so don't ever show it during the day. Guess what? Most people go out and look at homes and properties that are for sale during the day. Usually when people get ready to buy a house, like, say, for example, in Sacramento, they may be moving from another area. Their company that's moving them here is maybe giving them a special time that they can have, like, a visit to the community, you know, to the new town, look at houses. So people look for at houses during the day. If you do that and say, don't look at it during the day, you're limiting the market, okay? If uh, if the house is not held holding open houses or you're not allowing the other agents to see it or if you as the seller are not doing your part, you know, nowadays what's really important and most really good agents will tell you, you have to stage the house, make it look very attractive. In other words, what does that mean? That means the minute you sign that contract as a, as a seller, you listen to what the agent tells you. And when the agent tells you things like, you know, Pat, you need to vacuum the place every day. That's true. You need to make the bed all the time. You need to clean the dishes. You need to make the house attractive to people that come in. You need to mow the lawn. If you don't do those things, will the house sell? Sure. But will it sell for the, the amount of money that you could possibly get? No. Okay? It's going to sell for something less. So that's why I stress to people that you and your real estate agent are a team, and it's a team effort to sell this thing, and you have to do everything in the power to get it sold. So exposing it to the market for a period of time and doing everything in your power is important. That will dictate the price you get. The other thing is is how long it's going to take to, for the property to be on the market. You know, typically houses that are in a nice area that are considered to be houses that the average people can afford, you know, you know, maybe people that are moving after the second or the third time, we're talking about maybe $300,000 houses, are probably going to be able to be sold in maybe 30 or 60 days. Just, I'm just saying that. If you take a house that is a million dollars, that may have to be on the market for five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten months for it to sell. So we have to look at all of these things relative to what type of property we're talking about. If it's raw ground, it may take a lot longer. Okay? If it's an office building or a shopping center, it's going to take longer. So you have to take a look at that. That's why those definitions are really important. The other thing is that in this transaction, the buyer and the seller should understand what the property could be used for, you know, used its best use. And um, the other thing, too, believe it or not, is that the price should also, you know, the market value is also dependent upon the fact that the buyer is not underneath pressure to buy. And the seller is not underneath pressure to sell. What do I mean by that? In other words, if the seller is ready to go into foreclosure or lose the property or is facing two house payments if they don't sell, they are going to be more willing to drop their price down. Okay? So they're under pressure. They have to sell it. That's why I say to people a lot of times, you know, you know that's why you really, if you're going to look at selling it, be proactive. You know, start thinking about if you're going to move in June, start backing that date up and start talking to a real estate agent in December and January about marketing your home. Don't wait like a month before you need to sell it. Be proactive about it so you're not put under that pressure. Conversely, buyer. Buyer, I mean, in the past and a couple years ago, buyers would just write uh, offers sight unseen to buy a house because they were so desperate to buy because it was a limited supply of housing in Sacramento area. Okay. 
that was happening a few years ago when the interest rates were at rock bottom. I mean, when you, you know, you, you know, if you had a job, you could pretty much afford to buy a house. <laughs> pretty much that was a, it was what we call a seller's market. So the fact that you have to look at the price and context to all of those rules. If somebody is desperate to sell the house and take any offer, then that's going to depress the price. And when you get ready to compare, you know, the appraisal, if you're using that property as a comparable to the property you're appraising, it's going to show that your property should be worth less. That's why you need to know more about those transactions, what was going on. That's why you'll find out really good real estate appraisers are constantly talking to real estate agents in the community to find out what's going on. And conversely, the real estate agents are talking to the appraisers to find out what's going on. So there's a constant communication. That's why it's so important. But I really want to stress that definition. It's really critical when you're looking at the value of the property. Um, the next thing that I wanted to mention that is in your book is that we do have in California, and later on as we go through the class, I will show you where the website is, where it actually covers everything in detail. But there is something called the Office of Real Estate Appraisal or Appraisers, however you want to look at it. They're a state organization. Uh, people that are going to be doing appraisals on property that are going to involve the federal government. You know, in other words, the loans are going to be sold on the secondary market. It's an FHA, a VA loan, any kind of loan like that. What ends up happening is those people have to be licensed. The uh, currently right now, just to give you a rough idea, and we'll go into more detail later on, but if you want to be an appraiser that signs off your own work, the requirements by the state right now is that you have to have a series of classes, but the key thing is you have to have experience. And that's the thing that becomes very difficult for people to get because what you essentially have to have is for you to sign off your own appraisals, you have to have documented experience showing that you have had 2,000 hours. It's 2,000, I think some odd number, 2,000 hours of time underneath the control or the guidance of a licensed real estate appraiser who's watching what you're doing and signing off the appraisal work. Okay. So anyway, who licenses people? as we talk about it, OREA or the um, Office of Real Estate Appraisers. Okay, You'll also find out, too, that if you're in the appraisal business, you're probably going to find out that you may have to go and take additional classes or training depending upon the agencies that you appraise for. So, for example, you may have a requirement for FHA, a requirement for VA, a requirement for CalVet. So you always, and, and as I speak now, they could be changing that, but you always need to check on that stuff. Uh, the next thing that we want to talk about is uh, we talked about the appraisal as itself. What we need to do is we need to figure out when we first start the appraisal, and these two things go together, both the purpose of the appraisal and the problem you're trying to solve. Typically, the problem you're trying to solve is coming up with the market value of the property. And you're coming up with that value for a lot of different reasons. Most of us are familiar with the fact that we may be getting, the, uh, getting an appraisal because we're buying the property we need to get a loan. The lender is requiring us to get this appraisal. But there are a lot of other reasons. So the first thing that we have to do is define what it is that we're trying to do. What, what, what are we trying to resolve? What kind of a problem? So they say, for example, the, uh, the process consists of four logical steps, and we'll go into those in more detail. Okay? later on, and that is, first of all, you're going to be defining and clarifying what it is, the problem you're trying to do, 
Okay. Number two, you're going to be gathering information, and we'll talk about how you go about doing that. Number three, you're going to actually be performing the three appraisal methods, and there's reasons why sometimes you do them and sometimes you don't. And then finally, you're going to be correlating the final value. And the one thing with real estate appraisal, and I remember this for years and years, it's not like you figure out what the market approach is, the cost approach, and the income approach and average them out. What the appraiser does is they look at the different methods of appraising property and figure out the best one, the best tool to come up with the value for that property. And that's based on their knowledge and experience. Now, why do you get an appraisal? There are lots of reasons why somebody would do this. And, and um, I'm going to go through some of them here. The first thing is, is you may very well be doing it to establish the market value. And the reason why you may be doing that is if you're doing it, for example, for a homeowner, a home that's buying a home, it might be where the homeowner is concerned, even if they're not getting a loan, they want to make sure that they're not paying too much for the property. So what they'll do, and, I'll get, and as I give you an example, believe it or not, if I was to ask all of you, and I've done this in other classes, what kind of a property we could buy in Sacramento for somewhere in the neighborhood of about $175,000, you'd all go, oh, God, you, maybe a condo if you're lucky. Maybe, and if you bought anything in a decent area, it would probably be a one-bedroom house that was you know, maybe 500 square feet. Conversely, if you go to places like Oklahoma City, you're going to find out for the same price, for $175,000, you're going to buy a three-bedroom or a four-bedroom, two- or three-bath with a three-car garage built out of brick that's only a couple years old in a nice lot. Now, the fact is, is that if you moved from California and you went to Oklahoma, you would walk in there and you go, my goodness, look at this. And if they had a price on it for $200,000, $250,000, you would buy it. Because you would be using as a comparison what it would cost in Sacramento. But if you have an appraiser come in, the appraiser is going to say, no, wait a minute. I know maybe that's what they go for in Sacramento, but in Oklahoma City, this is what they go for. So they'll be helping you so that you don't overpay for something. Also, you'd be looking at market value. If you're looking at borrowing money, the lender wants to know what would happen if they would get ready to sell it, what they could sell it for. Uh, another value that you would have would be for insurance value. Now, in this case, this would be where you would be asked as an appraiser to come up with the value of the house. If you take a look at a lot of fire insurance and home insurance policies, many of them will be written and talk about, you know, that they will cover the cost of the actual loss and what it would take to replace whatever that is, the residence. Well, part of it is you may very well need to have an appraiser go out there and determine what the value of the property is. It might be as simple as determining what the value of the land is or the value of the structure or whatever as a starting point as to what the insurance company may or may not pay or will or will not cover. Okay, so and again, this is a very important thing. You can look at the loan value. Assessed tax assessed value is another thing. Now, we, because of Proposition 13 and because we're set as to how often we can raise taxes, this is not as big of an issue. But if for whatever reason you had a dispute between you and the county as to what you thought the property was worth, you may very well have an appraisal to determine the market value and what your assessed value, what you're going to pay taxes on. Okay. Rental value would be another one, value for certain internal revenue service purposes, and that could be, for example, uh, you know, you could have that for a number of reasons. For example, uh, for an estate tax situation where you're leaving a lot of property 
and there might be income tax or estate taxes. In other words, you're not selling it, but you're, 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 you're leaving it in your will to somebody, and somebody has to establish a value. You may have an appraiser for that. Uh, you may have where the Internal Revenue Service is going to, uh, for example, uh, levy a, you know, um, uh, a lien against your house for not paying your taxes, and they may want to know what the property is worth. So there could be a lot of different things why you would maybe do an appraisal on that. Settlements would be another one, and under settlements I would include, uh, it could be things like a divorce settlement. It could be where a husband and wife are married, and there's a decision made where, uh, for example, uh, the uh, husband is going to stay in the house and take care of the children, or the wife is going to stay in the house and take care of the children, and the other person in the divorce is going to get the car or the boat, whatever it happens to be. And what we need to do is figure out what the value of the property is so we know, you know, we know how much that is worth so that we say, okay, well, you know, you're going to get the house and I will get the car, the boat, the plane, <laughs> whatever it is. In other words, how are we going to settle this issue? And that could be from a divorce. It could be from a business settlement. It could be for a lot of things. The other couple of things they put in here are things like salvage value. Salvage value means that after, believe it or not, even if a house is blown down by a storm, there's normally something that is left that has some value. So they were talking about what's left in salvage value. And then many other reasons why you may do that. Uh, you can have uh, appraisals, for again, for income tax reasons. You can have them f uh, if you're going to convert a property, for example, from a house you're living in. Uh, where you're going to turn it into a rental property, you may very well want to have an appraiser come in to help you establish the value of the property because now you're moving it from a place you live to some place where you're going to rent it out and you're going to have a depreciation schedule and you want to know how much is the land worth and how much is the, uh, the improvements worth so that you can give that to your accountant. So then if you're ever audited and the accountants, you know, and the IRS says, well, how did you come up with that value? You can pull out that appraisal and say, this is how we did it. And then they can see they can see that you did, you know you hired a professional person to come in and come up with a value. So there could be a lot of different reasons. Uh, this chart that's here that's in your book uh, gives you a process that you would go through when you do an appraisal. And I sort of like this chart because what it basically does is it gives me something to put stuff that I can understand what's going on. Uh, the first thing that you need to do when you're doing an appraisal is define what the appraisal problem is. Now, here's how it typically works. Usually, a real estate appraiser is in contact with people that need their services on a regular basis. In other words, so they're talking to attorneys, they're talking to accountants, they're talking to lenders. And typically, what ends up happening is one of those people calls the appraiser and says, excuse me, would you mind going out and doing an appraisal on this property? And they'll tell you why. It could be, for example, establishing the value because you're going to convert it to a rental. It could be for a loan. It could be for a divorce settlement. It could be for something. So what you're doing is you're trying to grasp or get a handle around what you're trying to figure out, what's trying to define. They may come back to you and say, I really want to know what the value is based on the income it's going to produce. You know, I'm buying a hotel, I'm buying a motel, I want to know what the value should be if I'm going to buy it as an income-producing piece of property. What is it going to cost? So you want to define what the problem is with the client. The second thing that you're going to do, and this is going to be before you ever leave the office. Let me make this clear. Let me make this very, very clear. 
what you want to do is you are wanting to be prepared before you leave your office with all of the information and data you need. Because here's what's going to happen. You're going to have the address of the property. You're going to drive out there. You're going, you should have before you ever leave the place the address, directions, you should have your camera with you. You should have things such as comparable properties that you've gotten that you've pulled out of the multiple listing system. You may very well have contacted the title insurance company and you may have asked them for comparables. Because remember that and there are times, there are many times when properties don't go through the MLS system. New homes, for example, or maybe homes that have been sold to somebody else for sale by owner don't go through MLS. So you, if you contact, uh, one of the great title insurance companies like we have here in town, like Financial Title, they can provide through customer service something called comparables and a property profile. So the point here is before you ever leave your office, you're going to be armed with all this data. Then you're going to drive over to the house. And when you drive over to the house, as you enter in through the community, you're going to be looking at things like what's the neighborhood like? You know, is the neighborhood appeared to me to be going up? getting better? Does it appear to be getting worse? Uh, do I look around and see a lot of abandoned cars? Uh, are the lawns cut? Are the houses painted well? Does it look pretty? Which direction? Does it look like it's all rental properties? In other words, do people, you know, have old cars parked on the lawn? Uh, you know, all those kinds of things you're going to take into consideration. Also, during that period of time, you may very well, depending upon your route, of traffic, you may have very well driven past those properties that you have as a comparable. And you'll have your camera and you'll take pictures of those and say, you know, uh, okay, I drove by this, that house. So you have an idea what these comparables look like. And as Jeff would tell us, uh, Jeff Webb would tell us, you may very well have also called the real estate agents to find out a little bit about the property before you've driven by. So you've done a lot of stuff. The whole idea is that you're getting yourself so you can do this efficiently. When you get to the house, you're going to look at things like how is it situated? Is it close to noise? Are airplanes flying over the top of it? Uh, does the house look like it's in good repair or disrepair? Does it look like it's, uh, uh, you know, does it have a nice view? View is going to be very important. So if you have a beautiful view of the Sierras or a beautiful view of Folsom Lake and the lights of Sacramento, that's going to have differences in the value. So you're going to be looking at all of that stuff. Also, when you go out there, besides the site, you're going to be ready, willing, and able to do things such as walking in the house, taking photographs of the different rooms, taking measurements to confirm square footage, writing notes down that the property is in good condition, poor condition, or whatever. So anyway, you're going to be doing that because as a licensed real estate appraiser, you're required to inspect that property. I don't mean as a home inspector, but you're required to go out there and take a look at it, you know, because you're rendering an opinion as to its value. So the point here is, is that you're gathered this data before you ever left the office, or a lot of the data you have. You're going to break it down into a couple different areas. We're going to talk about the fact that you have general data and you have specific data. Now, general data, when we talk about this in the book, is talking about general data within the community. So, for example, is the region or the city that it's in, is it getting better or is it getting worse? Are people moving into the community or moving out of the community? Does the neighborhood look like it's getting better or is it getting worse? That's what we mean about general data. And you can get that both from driving through the community and also by pulling different kinds of reports. Okay? 
On the other hand, this is the data that you're talking about, the house itself. You're looking at specific data, like where is it located, its lot location. Does it have a view, yes or no? Is it in good condition? What kind of improvements does it have? Does it have a pool, yes or no? Does it have a spa? Does it have some of those other amenities that are in houses that will help set it aside? Does it have, like... Uh, does it have uh, formica countertops, tile countertops, granite countertops? What kind of countertops does it have? And within the house, is that an over-improvement for the area or is that an under-improvement? So, for example, if you're looking at a community in which maybe most of the houses have been fixed up and repaired or it's an expectation that you're going to have all granite countertops in the house, if you walk in and this house has all formica countertops or it's a four-bedroom, one-bath, and the rest of the houses in the community have four bedroom, three bath, that's going to be some, have some effect. Or if it doesn't have a garage, or I've seen in some houses where people have converted the garage into the living room. So when they say it has a living room, it's what used to be the garage. Those are all important things. So you're going to be gathering data about the site itself. After you do that, you're going to look at the three different sets of tools that you have available to you. And we'll talk about those again in more detail. There's three different types of approaches you can take to figuring out the value of the property. One of them is the market approach. The market approach is something that we as consumers really understand. We do this every day. Uh, and typically, in most cases, residential property, usually in communities that are fairly homogeneous. So I'm talking about where you have condos, you have things like H.C. Elliott communities, houses that are fairly similar in nature is where you can get away and use the market approach, okay? Because usually what's happening is people are buying homes with the intention of living in the area, not in the intention of uh, renting them out. They're looking at buying them to live there. So there's an emotional, a lot of the value to that is tied up in the emotional part of the property, such as, is it safe for my family? Is it near the schools? Is it and it, does it look pleasant to my eye? Does it have that pool? You know those things. You're going to be looking at all that. Market approach is simple for us to understand because we do that all the time. We go to the store. We compare. You know this company's sugar versus this company's sugar. This you know this coffee versus this coffee. We look at crystal milk versus another kind of a milk. We're used to the idea of comparative shopping. And also in that, we're used to the fact that we're going to pay more because something has more features. Uh, we do that in cars all the time. We go out and we take a look at cars, and we're looking at Toyota Camrys. We look at the two cars. If they were off in the distance, I always like to think about this. They were off in the distance. You walk up, you talk to the salesperson, and you say, excuse me, I'm looking for a blue Toyota Camry. I see you have two of them. Uh, can you tell me something about them? And the guy says, well, that one is 18000 and that one is 24000 You say, well, why? What's the difference? And he says, well, this one has cloth seats in it. It has an AM, FM radio, and air conditioning. This one has a sunroof, stereo, leather seats, power steering, power... And he goes down the list of all the amenities it has. It has a six-cylinder. This has a four-cylinder. Now, the reason why you're paying more, even so the cars look the same from the outside from a distance is because one has a lot of other features and benefits. The same thing with a house. We may have two houses that are identical. If this one doesn't have a pool, but this one does, or this has a fireplace and this one doesn't, those are all things that we're going to add to the value or take away from the value when we get ready to buy it. 
It's our perceived value. So we have, we're used to this comparative marketing approach, very, very used to it. The second approach that we utilize is something called the cost approach. Typically, we will use the cost approach in an area where it's very difficult for us to come up with a market value uh, based on the, the, the comparative market analysis. What does that mean? It means that maybe the house has in a rural area, there haven't been a lot of sales. It could be possibly something unique. You know, we're talking about maybe farm property, ranch property. We could be talking, uh, I mean, where it's used for residential use, not not real agriculture use. But we're talking about something that there's not a lot of sales around there. So in that case, we may turn around and say, well, you know what we're going to do is an indicator is we're going to figure out what it would cost to buy the property. And then we're going to figure out what it would cost to buy build this house. And then because the house is 15 years old, we're going to take away a certain amount of money because of depreciation. And as we go later on in here, there are companies. One of them happens to be a company called Marshall Swift that provides this kind of data. And we'll talk about that later on. In other words, they have information on per square foot based on the type of structure. Is it brick? Is it T111 siding? Does it have a shake roof or a tile roof or whatever? And they come up with cost per square foot so we can figure out what it would cost to reconstruct the house. So we'll talk about that. That would be another approach we may take because we don't have enough market data. The last approach that we could take a look at is something called an income approach. Now, again, if this is residential property where people, the value is really held by people wanting to live there, Income may not be something that is important. As an example, uh, if you go home tonight and you pull up the Sacramento Bee or you're on your way home and you stop at one of the bookstores, especially like on a, like a Friday, Saturday, or Sunday where there's a lot of real estate data in the, pro, in the paper, and usually they start putting it in the paper near the end of the week because a lot of people are going to go out and look for houses. But you pick out a particular area where you would be interested in buying a house. And you look at the prices of those houses. And you may say, okay, well, I'm looking for this house and I found one. It's, you know, even if it's in a, in a developed community like HCL, you say, this is a three bedroom, two bath. This was the model. You know, and that house is selling for $400,000. And if I figure it out, my payments are going to be maybe $3,000 a month based on everything I'm going to do when I put down on it. Then you go over and you look in the rental section of the paper. And you say, well, what would it cost me if, if is there something in that area that I could rent? You're going to find out that, very, especially nowadays, there may very well be, but you're not going to pay $3,000 a month for that. You may pay twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen hundred, eighteen hundred a month, but you're going to pay substantially less than what you would be making for payments. And the reason why is because, you know, now if I was to use the value that I would get from income from renting it out, my price of that house would be substantially lower. Okay, so the point is, is income is income approach is we use that on places where we generate income. So that would be like hotels, motels, mobile home parks, movie theaters, mini warehouse storage, office buildings, shopping centers, things like that. That's where we use the income approach on single family homes. We may look at it. We may consider it, but we may find out it has no real indicator of value. Okay, none whatsoever. So anyway, we will. As appraisers, choose one, two, or maybe all three approaches. We may run all three approaches to look at it as a sanity check. When we get all done with it, the final appraisal is going to come down, and as a professional appraiser, you're going to come up with the final value. 
You're going to look at all of the data that you've gathered, both uh, via paper versus driving around, looking at all the services, and you as a professional appraiser are finally going to come down and put your name on the line and say, this is what I think the property is worth. You're going to look at, uh, at the approaches and re remember that this is not, this final value is not uh, an average of all three. It's what you feel is the best indicator of the value of that house. Okay? So I may very well look at a house and say, you know what, if I rented it out, I could only get 1500 a month for rent. And if you capitalize that, you may find out the house is only worth at that value maybe $150,000, $200,000. But if you look at it as a regular sale, it could be worth a lot more money because people are going to live there. They're going to pay more money because it's their home and they have perceived value, so on and so forth. So you as an appraiser are the one that's going to figure that out. Uh, this part, oh, the, the other thing I want to mention, too, that they bring in here, that when you're doing an appraisal, you need to keep in mind is that when you're doing an appraisal, you're doing it based on its, the, how the property's highest and best use. So let me define that, and I'll give you an example of that. It says, the primary purpose of site analysis by an appraiser is to determine the highest and the best use of the property. Land is always appraised separately as if it's vacant and available for highest and best use. Uh, let me go on a little bit further than that, and then I'll give you an example. It says, before you can properly appraise a property, we must determine its highest and best use. Highest and best use is the use that the property uh, that is the... I'm sorry, highest and best use is the use that the property will produce the maximum amount of profit or net return. For example, should we build a house or an apartment on an available piece of land? Okay. From the standpoint of economics, it would be best to build that which brings the highest net return. As an example, let me give you several examples. As a city grows, as a city gets larger, and it starts to move out. In other words, the boundaries of the city start to get move out into the suburban area. You may very well find out that a farmer who was growing wheat, corn, grazing cattle, or whatever on that property for years and years and years, that at that point in time when he first started, the highest and best use was maybe for growing wheat, corn, or, I don't know, tomatoes on that property. But as the, as the city starts to move out, into that area, encroaching or going over or getting closer to that farmer's land, you may find out that the farmer's land, the highest and best use now is not to grow tomatoes anymore. It's to put a housing subdivision on it or a shopping center. Uh, we can have all sorts of examples like that around Sacramento. This past weekend, I was out in the North Natomas area. If you drive out there, we're talking about out near Arco Arena, or uh, out towards uh, Metro, Metro Airport. I can remember the day that I arrived here in Sacramento in 1969, which was a few years ago. There was nothing out there, absolutely nothing. Now you go out there, and there is all kinds of shopping, all kinds of stores, all kinds of houses going on. So if you had farmers that were using that land to graze or grow crops, which they were, now that land has become more valuable because it could be used for houses, shopping centers, or whatever. We see the same thing in Elk Grove. We see the same thing in West Sacramento, going out to Yolo County and also going up Highway 50 or out towards Roseville. All of those areas, for those of us that have been around for a long period of time, know that the land, the highest and best use will change. <clears throat> Conversely, another example I like to give 
is that you will be driving down through some of the older parts of the community, such as along Marconi Avenue, Watt Avenue, and specifically maybe even El Camino Avenue, and you'll see things that look like houses. And they are houses. And what they were is at one time people lived in them and they were residential homes. And as you drive down that street, like across the street from Country Club Center, you'll notice that people don't live there anymore. They're used for doctor's offices, dentist's offices, attorneys, accountants, or whatever. So the concept is the highest and best use for that anymore is not to use as a residential property, but to lease it out or rent it out for a doctor's office because it generates more income. So that's the point. As you as an appraiser, you're looking at this, what is the highest and best use for this property? You would be negligent if you were to say an appraised property that currently has cows on it or growing a crop and not at least think about the fact or let people know that, hey, this is prime property that could be used for a shopping center. Okay, you need to consider that stuff or a housing tract. doesn't mean it could be done right away, but you need to be considering that. Or maybe rendering, say, hey, if you continue to use this as to grow tomatoes, it's worth this. But it is so close to being redeveloped that it could be worth this. And believe me, the farmers will know about it, okay, because they're looking at that as being some kind of a retirement plan for them. Okay, so that's very, very important. Okay, going from there, the book talks a lot about a lot of different things, neighborhoods up, you know, that they get better or worse. Um, what I wanted to do was uh, talk about some of the things that they, that they discuss in here that affect the value of the property. And these are things that after you think about them for a while, you'll say this makes so much total common sense. I can't believe that I already knew all this stuff. So this is more or less just reconfirming what you're looking at. Okay, so first of all, one of the things that can affect the value of a property, good or bad, are things such as physical considerations, social considerations, political considerations, and economic considerations. Those sound like big words, but what in the world do they really mean? So we'll start out with physical. Um, I'll read a little bit of this, and then I'll talk about it. It says, for example, under physical conditions, a neighborhood that is close to the commercial area is genuinely, genu generally highly desirable. Now, we don't mean... <laughs> sitting on the street corner right next to the 7-Eleven. What we're talking about is that there's a reasonable ex expectation or property may very well be worth more money if you have a reasonable distance to travel to go shopping at the grocery store or to go to work or whatever. That's what we're talking about. Being close to downtown areas, employment centers, and major shopping areas are only adds to the desirability as long as the owner is not located right next to such a facility. If the street patterns are, are curved and there are wide boulevards, the neighborhoods also looks more attractive. So what we're talking about here is that if you look at property in an example, here in the Sacramento area, we have streets that are just, if you will, east of high, uh, the 30th, the 80 freeway downtown or the 30th street, getting out towards Mercy Hospital. We call them the fabulous 40s. <clears throat> Very nice tree-lined streets, you know, pretty houses that are worth the fortune. Why? Because people that live there are very close to where they could work. In other words, those are people that maybe are attorneys, accountants, they work downtown, they work for, you know, judges, they work in courthouses. It's close for them to get to work, okay? Very thing. 
Another area where you'll see that happening would be around Fair Oaks Boulevard and uh, American River Drive. Those houses are worth a lot of money. Why? Because they are very close, again, to downtown, to the employment centers. They are close to things like the colleges and the universities, specifically Sac State, very, very, you know, very expensive areas. So consequently, just keep in mind that the closer, and as long as the areas are homogeneous and they're nice areas, they're not, you know, haven't gone, you know, the other direction, they're good areas, they will be worth a lot of money because people want to be close to work. As you get out towards Fair Oaks, for example, off of Fair Oaks Boulevard and Watt Avenue, you'll see some properties if you drive through those communities where people have houses that have like an acre worth of property. They have a lot of property. And so they're more valuable. Okay, so typically you'll see that maybe you'll look at a house in that area that might be a 2,000-square-foot house that could be worth three-quarters of a million or a million dollars because of its close proximity to the downtown area. Take that same physical house and put it in another area you know, that's a greater distance from downtown, and it's going to be worth a lot less. Okay, so it's the closeness, the proximity to things that cause it to happen. Uh, second thing... They go on from there, and they basically also talk about things such as access to transportation, availability of freeways, transit systems. Those things are all make those areas well. Second thing, balanced land use. And I won't go into full details, but it says the best efficiency and high value comes when there is a balance between different types of use. A city is a naturally attractive environment when it has the proper balance between residential, commercial, industrial, and recreational space. So what we mean is is that, you know, we want to live in a community in which we don't have to drive that far to go to the doctor's office or go to the hospital or go to work or go to shop or to shop. You know, we have to have a balanced use. You know, if we have all residential but no commercial anywhere, people are going, that's going to be less attractive than if we have those stores. And if you really look at like in the Sacramento area, as we've expanded, you know, whether it's Elk Grove, Natomas, out east, you know, going to Placerville, whatever, in every one of those communities, we have a housing area, and one of the things that they build is all the stores that go along with it. The home depots or depots, the Lowe's, the rallies, they're all built there to service that community. That's very important. People do not want to move to Placerville, or I'm sorry, to um, Placer County, to Roseville, but still have to drive to Sacramento to go get a quart of milk. They want to have that close. That's what we're really talking about. So balanced land use. Another thing that we look at, too, is something called social considerations. Okay, that would be that neighborhoods often consist of persons of similar income, education, culture, and backgrounds, and lifestyle. That's one of the things that we have sometimes a difficult time understanding is what is a neighborhood. Sometimes it's easy for us to think, to figure it out. You know, we go into a planned community in which either one, two, three, or four developers or more have gotten together and built houses. Maybe there's 500 or 1,000 houses in there, and every house is you know, it's a pretty well balanced or you know, the people are similar in nature. So we can drive from one street to the other and have an expectation that we're not going to see an old car sitting on somebody's lawn or that the house will be in disrepair. But you can go downtown, and this is kind of fun to do. Go down and go down those streets. Start in an area where the houses are extremely valuable. Drive two streets over, and you find out that the houses are falling apart. Or drive one direction or the other. So the point is, is a neighborhood sometimes can be a very large area or it can be a very small area. It could be limited to one block, okay? And the next street over is completely different. 
So you want to keep that in mind when you're looking at property in that case. So it goes on and says, as such, neighborhoods may or may not appeal to certain individual buyers. Could uh, could be a change in social makeup, neighborhood, affect value. You know, neighborhoods, by the way, go up in value and go down in value. Typically what ends up happening, especially we saw this in the downtown area, the reason why a lot of property values went down, you know, ever since I've been in Sacramento, and I've been in Sacramento since 1969 now, they have consistently and constantly been working on doing something to help improve downtown. Uh, you know, since I and one of the things that affected downtown, which a lot of people don't realize, was transportation. When people had the ability to get in a car and drive out to a house and have land and a swimming pool and a house in the, in the country, they moved out. And the people that came in behind them and filled in and lived in those houses typically did not have the same amount of money as the people that moved out. So, for example, that's why when we go downtown Sacramento, we will see houses or have seen houses that maybe if we went back and took a look at it, it was a family, it was a nice Victorian it had a lot of square footage. Family lived there for years. They originally built it. When they moved out of town and somebody else moved in, maybe the new buyer had less money. Maybe even the third buyer decided to split them up into rooming houses, separate rooms, and it continued that way. And now, now, and for years they've been doing this in the downtown area where all of a sudden they say, you know, wait a minute, we want to turn this whole thing around. And what they'll do is they'll find out that they're going to get some form of program or designated area. I've seen downtown where they start doing things like go back into that area and actually literally jack the houses up, put foundations under them, and we can find that. So, in other words, uh, you know, people, people, as people move out, the values typically, you know, if they're replaced by people that work, make less money, will go down until somebody comes in and makes some kind of a change to make the value go back up again. It's just the fact that we need to be we as appraisers need to be conscientious of that and how those things affect the value of the property. Very, very important. Uh, and then again, finally down here, we talk about economic conditions, uh, things like population growth. It says population growth is an indication of economic health of a neighborhood. If more people want to live in the area, then it must be desirable. An economically alive neighborhood has a well-maintained lawns, buildings, whereas a deteriorating neighborhood, the lack of maintenance is obvious and and so is lowers the value of the homes. Okay, uh, Again, economic considerations. That's why we are so concerned when we hear about in our community that things, you know, like, for example, when, when we had the military bases, at one time in this community here, military base-wise, we had Sacramento Army Depot. We had Mather Air Force Base. We had McClellan Air Force Base. All of those communities, all of those bases employed lots of people. Uh, if you drove in those communities, there were people that lived close to those uh, installations, those military installations. There were businesses that depended upon the employees that worked there to get make a living. So you had sandwich shops laundromats, dry cleaners, all that. So when those places closed, that had an effect. That's why Sacramento community was so concerned about getting other businesses in there because people were afraid that the value of their houses were going to just go right down, go right down. businesses were going to go out of business. So the point here is, is that if the community has people migrating in, the values are going to go up. If, on the other hand, people are leaving, 
the values are going to go down. That's why we as a community are so concerned about having either growing or having a stable types of employment and businesses within the community that holds our values or holds the value of our properties and helps us pay for services and things that we need. Okay, so we need to be concerned about that. The last thing here they talk about is political. Is another thing that we need to look at. Things like property taxes vary from area to area. Wealthy, more stable economic areas usually have a slightly higher tax rate because the residents, and they may not have a higher tax rate because they pay a higher rate. It's because the houses are worth more. <clears throat> so what ends up happening, the same size house with the same square footage, okay, maybe even the same cost to build it, because it's worth more money and assessed more, pays more in taxes. Those taxes then are used for fire departments, schools, all those kinds of things. So that's why we end up having, you know, schools, if you will, better schools in areas where we have houses that are worth more because those people are paying more property taxes. So political considerations is another thing. The next thing that we want to mention in here is... Um, they have in here that we need to be concerned with when we're going out and, and looking at a piece of property is the actual physical site. And in here, they give you an example of a subdivision, and we talk about the different ways that the property could be used. Just to give you an example, this would be uh, an example of the streets and the lots and, let's say, a subdivision, something that we would see that's being built. What they're doing is showing you so you're cognizant of the fact of depending upon where, if you will, the same exact house would be placed could have a dramatic effect based on the lot. So, for example, when you're looking at the property, this is, this is a cult, what we call a cul-de-sac lot. Characteristically, they typically have certain things that people tend to like. First of all, there's usually... Hardly any traffic in this area. The people that are in this area right here are usually homeowners or people that got lost, one or the other. Uh, people feel safe. They like, they feel comfortable. Their kids can be out there. There's less chance of them or their dog or their animals getting hurt or killed or whatever. You notice in the front here, usually if you own that and you happen to be the one that mows the lawn, you have a smaller front lawn, which could be an advantage to some people. Uh, you tend to have a larger backyard, okay? So people will like that for those reasons. So they may very well value that house more than they would some other one. B is a house that's on a corner lot. Uh, I typically like to say that usually people that like corner lots are show-offs. Uh, the reason why is because if you look at a lot of corner lots, they usually have a lot of lawn, they have a lot of flowers, they have a lot to maintain, and it's, you know... It's not that I'm saying anything negative, but it's just the fact that, hey, here I am. I like the corner lot. I stand out. I have access, whatever. Um, that's, that's an advantage. Disadvantage is some people don't like them because sometimes, like, kids will cut across the yard. They'll wear the lawn out, so there's disadvantages to it. Sometimes within these areas where you have a corner lot, I have seen properties where they'll have access in the back for, like, RV or boats. Okay, so these are one of the lots that maybe would have that kind of an access. So anyway, you look at that lot different. B, C, this lot right here is a lot that actually has, you know, it has, it's a pretty good size lot, but the problem here is that you end up having a lot of different neighbors to this. If you look at some of these, you may find out that the fences look different. In other words, 
that this fence is different between this guy and this guy, and then as you go around, so you have a lot of different neighbors to contend with, and some people may like that or dislike it, okay? Let's see. D, this lot can be a problem lot. The reason why is because as you come down the street, there's typically a stop sign here, and what happens is the traffic, the lights from the car show right in through the front windows. That's the first one. Second thing is, is that if you miss the stop sign, or somebody becomes, as we would say, uh, impaired due to alcohol, you know, using it, can run the stop sign, and I've seen cars go directly into the front of the house, and usually that's where you have the living rooms, people can get hurt. Also, a lot of traffic, and people are very concerned about their children. I have found that over and over again. They are extremely concerned about their kids getting hurt. This has a lot of traffic around there. That's D. E is usually a fairly uh, stable lot. This is like an inline lot. Uh, this doesn't have that T intersection. Uh, it's not, and, and again, this goes based on opinion of value, uh, you know, but E is typically, you know, you have less traffic here. The lots tend to be maybe, in this case, a little bit bigger in the back, okay? Then you have E and you have F. This is a weird lot. This lot right here would be something where somebody cut out for whatever reason. I've seen these lots. What happens is they call the flag lot. You drive down the thing, and all of a sudden you go in the back and you say, my goodness, that's a large piece of property. Okay, but usually the property is in the back. The concept here is what you want to do is be aware of the fact that the way the lot is situated, where the property, where how the house is situated, whether it faces north, south, east, or west, whether it gets extensive amount of sun, in the summertime where you feel like you have to have sunscreens and, and uh, you know, maybe it's been poorly constructed in the sense that if you are facing the south, you should have where the roof overhangs enough that when that sun comes in intensively during the day, it helps keep the sun out because it can do things like really wear out the front of the house, wear out the doors, crack the doors and stuff like that, or you find out your heating and air conditioning bill is really high because you get that intensive sun all day long. But you want to be aware of the site. You want to be aware of its amenities. You want to uh, understand. I've seen people build houses on sites where they could have had really nice views, you know, of, say, the mountains or the lake or whatever. And for whatever dumb reason, they picked and faced the house. So the only place you get the view of uh, that beautiful lake is by standing on top of the toilet in the bathroom and looking out the window. I mean, it's just no thought. And you see that a lot. What causes that to happen is many times a builder will have a set of plans that they've gotten all approved by an architect, and they don't want to spend the extra money, so they build the house, and they build them using those plans, not considering the site itself. Very, very important that you look at that. So with that, we're pretty close to the end. The next time we're going to pick up on, uh, we'll finish off the area of the lot, and we'll pick up on that the next time. And I want to thank you very much for watching, and uh have a nice day. Bye-bye.